Hello, I'm Maria Titizian and welcome to EVN Talks. My guest today in the studio is Adil Hovnanyan. She's the president and CEO of the H. Hovnanyan family office based in New Jersey, um, a position she's had since 2006. The company has a commercial real estate division, a land development division, and an investment portfolio. And she's also president of the H. Hovnanyan Family Foundation, which donates several million annually to various causes in Armenia and the United States. In 2003, Adil, you founded Birthright Armenia, uh, an organization that I think is a game changer in our reality. Um, And you've also supported a number of other Armenian mission-related programs, including High Ventures, Hike Armenia, and others. Your father, Harayr Hovnanyan, um, was very well known to me. I knew all about you and your family. It's a prolific family, very successful and very well known within the uh, Armenian-American diaspora communities. But most people in Armenia haven't really heard of Harayr Hovnanyan. They always equate with Vahakni, right, because of the the thing. Um, And today you are carrying on your father's, your parents' legacy by doing all of this amazing philanthropy in Armenia, as I said, game-changing organizations. What has that meant to you? Besides the fact that I have to do interviews because I'm like my father and I'm very quiet and would rather be out of the public eye. You know, we were all raised with a real sense of obligation. You know, I think I was probably 13 or 14 before I realized that being Armenian meant more than being a Hovnanyan. Like I truly, when I was young, thought that, you know, because of the Hovnanyan clan, the four brothers and two sisters, I have 21 first cousins and we all lived very close. To me, I it never occurred to me that there was a country or a people of Armenia. To me, being Armenian meant being a Hovnanyan. And, you know, and then, you know, dad slowly exposed us to the fact that, you know, there is this, you know, back then it was Soviet Union. So we were mostly focused, he focused us on the diasporan communities in Armenia. And, you know, I mean, we did some of it kicking and screaming. I mean, there were, there were experiences that he literally had to bribe us the first time to come to Soviet Armenia when we were in, I think I was 16, by promising me that I could stop in Paris on the way back. I mean, it was literally bribery. And then slowly, I think that um, when I went to college and I was at a big university, University of Pennsylvania, and there was a small little Armenian club. In that huge university, I just gravitated to something that was known to me, which was the Armenian community. So I joined the Armenian Students Association at University of Pennsylvania. And I started taking ownership of my own identity. And, you know, I was, you know, I was whatever, 17. And up until then, my Armenianism was defined by, you know, my parents sending us to Armenian camp and doing all those classic things that we in the diaspora would do to make our kids good Armenians. And at some point, you have to let your kids go and they either take ownership of it as part of their identity or they don't. And so fortunately for me, you know, college was was the first time I started taking ownership. And I and so I decided that it frustrated me that I didn't speak Armenian. So I applied to the Soviet embassy to see if I could get accepted to live in Armenia because I had come here once and I knew I could learn Armenian if I immersed myself here. And surprise of all surprises, I got accepted and remember distinctly walking into my father's bedroom and he's, you know, a very intimidating character. And he was with my mom, who was probably one of the most angelic women I know. And I said, Dad, um, I've just been accepted to study in Soviet Armenia. Did he know that you were applying? No. 
Okay. Of course, I didn't tell him. And I said, but and I have two weeks to accept and fly into the country. And back then, because that was the early 80s, there's no cell phones, there's no internet. You know, you get on a plane on Aeroflot, you know, that's it. You lose sight of your child. And so my mother, of course, was hysterically crying and said, no, I'm never going <laughs> to let you do that. And he was so serious. And he looked at me and he said, I'd be a hypocrite if I said no. And my mother, I thought she was going to kill him. But he said, that's, you know, this is what we did. We raised our children to have a very Armenian American life. And I have one daughter now out of five that really wants to push the envelope of defining herself as but an But that Armenian. was a big push. Yeah. For the early 80s. Yeah. yeah. And um, it, it changed my life. And, you know, as you never know when you're young, what's that moment and what's that road that you take that's going to redefine you? Um, and that for me, it was that road. And it was being in this country, not as it is now, but back then when life was so hard and you almost couldn't survive the winter. And I had no relatives here, my family, but dad was from Iraq. So you couldn't survive the winter without, you know, the canned vegetables and the cured meats and whatever. And I was a college student living in a dormitory with no relatives. And I mean, I could, I could tell, talk but one day, one day we're going to have drinks and I'm going to tell you stories. For sure, I'd love okay. to hear about them. Um, what motivated your father to instill or try to instill in his five children that connection with the nation? Because especially during, you know, during the Soviet era, we were all concentrated on our own communities, right. but even post-independence. Yeah. You know, I think that my father had a very close relationship with his father. He was a very, um, very proud Armenian, you know, genocide survivor, which absolutely, you know, he lost his first family and remarried. And he it very much influenced him and thus his sons and his daughters. And so I think that when Armenia became independent, you know, I had only been working for dad for about four years and I and I was just learning the business. And Armenia became independent. He looked at me and he said, I got to go. My father would push me, you know, to go. And I know this is my calling. It's, it's Jagadakita. It's mm -hmm. destiny that I go. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not ready to take on this huge companies that you have. And he says, you know, I'm, he says, you have to be fearless. And, you know, you're, I'm, I know I'm throwing you off the deep end, but I have to go. It was, first of all, his great faith in me. It forced me to grow up very fast. And he took my mother out of their comfort zone. I mean, I mean, now they have a, had a beautiful house here, but at the beginning they were renting a little apartment. Nobody knew him. And he was just trying to be a part of Armenian's future. And I think that's what he did, right? I mean, he just lived. Yeah. And, and sometimes we think when we think about coming to Armenia, moving to Armenia, repatriating to Armenia, we many people in the diaspora think they have to come with these big plans, these grand gestures. Sometimes just living is good enough, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, I think at the end he was just living. I think at the beginning during Levon Derbedrosian's time especially, I mean, literally no one knew what to do anything. He actually bought over oil and gas people because he truly believed that somewhere in the south, southern part of Armenia, if we can get through the rock, <laughs> we have to have natural resources. There's no way all our enemies around us have it. And, and we, we don't. don't. But, you know, corruption was an issue and it just became very complicated. And he, at some point he just said, you know, listen, if you don't want me to do this, and he just, he gave up. And I always regret that they didn't push him. He also had, he also recognized, so he had big dreams. He he recognized that without a port, Armenia would suffer. And so he 
took himself to Georgia to try to negotiate buying a port that was specifically be owned by Armenians and then negotiate some sort of transport corridor to Armenia. He knew that one, some, one of those things could be a game changer. And we still need and that. And it never <laughs> happened, and he, he regretted that. He regretted that he didn't... If, if he could have achieved one of those things, it would have forever changed Armenia's trajectory. So he did what he did, knows how to do, which is he built things. He mm -hmm. built the St. Anna Church after the earthquake. He built a massive uh, prefabricated component factory. Um, and then he built a beautiful house for my mother here. And then he just lived. And then he was older and mm -hmm. he just realized, okay, this is where I want to spend the rest of my <laughs> life. Now, mind you, his grandchildren and everybody was, you know, thousands of miles away. It was hard. But, and God bless my mom for, you know, just saying, okay, if, you know, she was an American born Armenian. She didn't want to be here, but she wanted, she needed to be with him. Mm -hmm. He loved it. And, uh, I will tell you, he, he even to his last breath, luckily I was here when he died last year, he knew the war was going on. He didn't quite understand exactly what was happening, thank God. But he, you know, in his last breath, you know, he didn't say, you know, I love you, whatever he said. And this is how intense my dad is. He said, do not be the first generation that saw the birth and the death of an of, of a country wow and he's like so that's the last thing he said to me meaning, meaning that you know he expects me to you know and i'm like okay what can i do? you know like i'm one person you know and he he really instilled that you can be a part of making a difference you just you can't be overwhelmed by the oh, because problem. that's easy um, to say the problem is too big i don't know how to solve it i'm just you know one person but every single uh initiative every single effort Makes a difference. Right. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. You are now running one of the largest Armenian foundations. It can be considered as a position of privilege. Um, but as I said earlier, it comes with huge responsibility. How does that responsibility weigh on you? Because here you have the ability to create programs, to support initiatives, to support people. How do you choose and choosing well? I ask the opinions of people I respect. I have a, a lot of people that I've met, especially diasporans who understand how I think, that have sacrificed to move to this country and so see things that I can't see in my short visits. So I, I welcome them to give me their thoughts and say, okay, if you were me, what would you do? And when I find someone that I believe in that I think is really committed to the country and they have a pet project, I'm like, okay, what can I do to help? How can I play a role in that? So I really take the lead from the, the people that I respect and trust and what they're passionate about because pretty much if you can rely on a person that's passionate about something, it will succeed. You know, I know I, I need to do a better job about getting our foundation to support local NGOs and local initiatives that, you know, and not just focus on the diaspora, which it seems from Birthright and Repad and other things that I have. Um, and but I, it's and connected to Armenia. It, I, mean, I know not... it is, but I know it is, but I, I need to do more. I, I, I haven't figured it all out yet. And I have some ideas and I, I come to Armenia and I share what my thoughts are and what my directions are. And I, I let, I let those that feel comfortable with me say, okay, if you were me, wh wh which one of these should I focus on next? A lot of our projects have multi-year um, planning that's involved because I don't want to start anything kind of half-cocked, you know? 
And um, so I have a few ideas that I'm, I'm kind of putting a team together to try to do their like two years of due diligence before we kind of announce what our next thing is going to be. But I always like to do things that I'm passionate about. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, even though Hike Armenia is not a huge program, I love hiking. I love letting tourists get out of the city center. Um, whatever money they spend, they spend it in local villages. Um, and Armenia's beauty is truly outside of Yerevan. I hate to say, I mean, Yerevan no, is very cosmopolitan. I agree with you more. But the people and the countryside redefine what Armenia is and remind us of what Armenia used to be in many ways, the beautiful parts of Armenia, which sometimes gets lost in modern Yerevan. So I want to encourage uh, Odars, I want to encourage non-Armenians and Armenians to to not come to Armenia and go a little beyond the Noravanks and the Gerards and Garnis, but really just pull the you know push themselves to experience the true Armenia, which I think is in the villages. Right. A lot of people in Yerevan haven't even done that I themselves. Know. So. so we started some local hiking trail clubs to try to encourage local kids to appreciate their countryside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wasn't really necessary before, but now in Yerevan where your workload is intense and you work long hours, you need that weekend hike to to decompress. And so now the local community, young people are realizing that, you know, I had an intense work week. I need to to decompress. And they're seeing the beauty of, you know, just just putting one foot in front of the other, you know, physically testing, pushing their limits and doing it in the Armenian countryside. And so my hope is, because I do believe it's, it ba- rebalances you, you, you know, if you want to progress and work an intense work week, you need that rebalance in some way, shape or form. For some people, it's intensive yoga. For me, it was always hiking. When I was at my busiest, I would always hike on the weekends. I think I'm going to go hiking with you some oh, weekend. You love it. Soon. Um, a lot of these projects that you have either started or support, we were speaking earlier and we were talking about impact, right? And it's important for these projects to be impactful, to, to make a change somehow. But impact takes time. Do you have the patience for it? I do. That's the one, you know, the one thing I know I do because I've built a lot of companies from scratch. And often when you're building a for-profit company, you know, you lose money at the beginning. So you have to believe in the project because you have to withstand those financial losses to get to the end. So for me, I kind of challenge myself to do the things that no one else wants to do because the impact isn't necessarily immediate. And then I also surround myself with staff that I say their job is to be my cheerleaders, which is when I start questioning, are we having an impact? Is this where what we should be focusing on? I have staff around me that knows I need to hear the positive things to can make me keep going. Because I do lose faith in, in what I'm doing and whether it's having the right impact um, from time to time. I mean, I'm only human. Right, but you've also chosen to take a difficult path. Because I presume being a foundation registered in the United States, you could just as easily donate the funds you need to donate to a hospital, to a charity, a well-established, yes. respected. And uh, I, I will admit, so 50% of our mandate is to give to Oda, non-Armenian organizations in the United States, primarily in the regions where we made our money, which is New Jer- the New Jersey area, and then 50% to Armenians, whether in Armenia or in the diaspora. And I will tell you, hands down, donating to the the non-Armenian community is so easy. They make it easy. They have a development team. 
They they have projects pre-prepared. You don't have to do the ask in terms of how are you going to acknowledge this donation. They already, you know, they automatically anticipate it and give you choices. And you can literally give away five, ten million dollars in five minutes. They make it so easy for you. On and and your and your name is on a university building or a hospital building or it's just so easy. And so. Most of our time, my time, is spent on Armenian philanthropy, and Armenians are challenging. And Why? Because I don't think that the most Armenian organizations have a development team that understands, so they're not, they don't have pre-prepared asks. So if I came to an, an Armenian organization, even a medium-sized one, and said, okay, I have an extra million dollars to give this year. What's on your wish list? And, and, don't and, say anything you can give. Yeah. And, <laughs> but I want to know it's going to have an impact. Of so, course. So if, yeah. if you there's got to be a dream. I want what what is I don't want this just to go to operating overhead so your fundraising efforts next year can be easier. I want you to take this and say, okay, what's that what's on your wish list? What's the one thing that you haven't been able to put on your to-do list because it's just you're surviving year to year. And I don't get I, they're unprepared for that right, question. But do we not know how to dream? I don't know. As Armenians, we're taught to stay in our lane often. And and one of the things I'm hoping for to be able to do, so one of the initiatives I'm thinking about is being able to get staff to go to the local um, regions of Armenia outside of Yerevan and find the best-run small NGOs and ask them if they have a dream. And if I find an NGO that has a dream, that has the ability to say, okay, this is what we do with what we have, but if money wasn't an issue, this is what I dream, that's the person I know I want to invest in because she, because they, they're fearless in dreaming. I know those people are out there somewhere. Most a, probably a woman because women right. are not scared to dream. <laughs> I will say that unapologetically, but um, I want to do that. I want, I want to create more dreamers in Armenia yeah. who don't think about the problems and don't want to stay in their lane because I think my father was a dreamer. He came to this country, you know, came to America with $25. And if he didn't dream and, and not fear failing, he wouldn't have achieved what he achieved. There's got to be those kind of dreamers throughout Armenia. Yeah, you know, you said something, you know, we're told to stay in our lane. And it's so true. You, growing up again in the diaspora to Armenian, very Armenian parents, if, if you told them you wanted to be an artist or an archaeologist, I remember I was obsessed with archaeology my dad said oh my darling no that's not a profession i wanted to be an artist no that's not a profession (laughs) we from a very young age we we squash our dreams and the dreams of our children um whether it's a survivor yeah out of of love. love okay sure you know because we are survivor nation we were immigrants teaching people how to dream again if you could manage that (laughs) i don't know i'm gonna try yeah you know the one good thing with that my father taught me is you learn more from your failures. So if I try... And if it doesn't work? It doesn't work. I retrench, okay. but I'm going to try. Yeah. I mean, they might be out there. You don't know. And all I need is one dreamer. And then then somebody else looks at her and says, wait a minute, if, if she did it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. You know? And so it's just one foot in front of the... I mean, birthright was an idea that was 10 people, then 30, then 100, then... Two, you know, it just... It's one foot in front of the other. And I, I am... I consider myself a very patient philanthropist. I will give an organization time if I believe that they believe. I will give them time. You have worked in or continue to work in the for-profit sector, the non-profit sector, the non-Armenian world, and the Armenian world. Which has been the most challenging? 
Oh, Armenian world by far. Which has been the most fulfilling? I don't know yet. Uh, ask it's me in still, 10 years. Okay. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll make a... I'm we'll still make dreaming that I can, I can do something that's impactful beyond birthright. I mean, I know the birthright was successful, but I need to do a lot more programs like that. I need to either incubate myself or support at a, on a large scale other programs like that. And I'm committed to Armenia because I think that... Our organization is, my foundation, family's foundation is so large and Armenia is so small that I can have a greater impact here than trying to deal with the entire diaspora, which I think has much more support. So Yeah, I mean, it's aff more affluent um, and it does have the organizational structure and the experience of sort of doing and I, that. And I think that uh, the, the donors that can give to Armenia got exhausted very quickly. I think that in the early 90s, there was... A lot of know, bad experiences. Yeah, a lot yeah. of bad experiences, a, a flood of enthusiasm that fell short. And I think a, too many have given up on Armenia. And so when I look around at who's left that's doing projects of scale, it's kind of embarrassing. There's very few of us. I mean, I keep believing that there's people I don't know, that they've were hidden somewhere, that you're going to give me a name of someone I haven't heard of. And it, when I keep, people keep mentioning names, I was like, okay, I know them, I know them. Okay, there's got to be more. There's mm -hmm. got to be more. I mean, um, it's just not enough. And I think that many ways, if I can be successful, maybe I will inspire them to come back and um, do something in Armenia. I mean, I'm hoping if I don't give up because a lot of people have given up. Well, I think... On your quest to find the dreamers, um, I doubt Edil Hovnanyan is ready to give up. <laughs> <laughs> so, final question. You've kind of answered it, but maybe if you want to articulate it uh, more um, comprehensively, what is the future for Edil and the foundation? I'm very fortunate that the next generation of Harad Hovnanyan's family has already take, uh, joined me. I've been mentoring him as dad mentored me. Um, so I gave him like about five years of mentorship, which is about all dad gave me. Very funny. I'm at the age where dad moved to Armenia and I and he, uh, my, my oldest sister's oldest son, Gor Sahakyan, is the age that I was and I'm dad's age. So it's like almost the symmetry is like kind of freaking me out. Thank God he's um, brilliant, patient, very Armenian because his father is from Yerevan, um, Toro Sahakyan. So I am, my future is to make sure that the family foundation and the family office is on solid ground. I work too hard to get it to where it is and slowly transition to create the Hurairo Nanian Family Foundation into an institution because it has to live beyond me. If I don't, and I'm a planner, so I need to have a plan that if I get hit by a bus, which is a thing I say to my staff all the time. I need to have a plan. This, this is, I'm not building something for my lifetime. I'm, my dad wanted me to build something that lives hundreds of years beyond our lifetime. And there's no reason to believe, just like the Rockefellers and the Gulbenkians and the Carnegies, that I absolutely believe that our foundation can, can rise to that level. And, and that's, that's my task, and that's going to be my focus. As I, I have about two more years where I'm going to mentor Gore, and then I'm going to focus on that full-time. Wow, Edil Hovnanyan, thank you so it's much for this uh, real um, inspiring conversation. Um, I think I'm going to call it Fearless Dreamers. Okay, absolutely. All right, thank, thank you. you.